friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nika Spaulding. And today we're going to be finishing the book of Lamentations. And so we're going to look at the entire chapter five today. Um, So yeah, so let's just jump right into the text. This is Lamentations chapter five. Recall, O Lord, what befell us. Look and see our disgrace. Our estate turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Orphans we were without fathers, our mothers like widows. Our water we drank for silver, our wood came at a price. Up to our necks we were pursued. We wearied, we got no rest. To Egypt we put out our hand, to Assyria to be sated with bread. Our fathers offended and are no more. It was we bore the weight of their crimes. Slaves ruled over us, none broke us free from their hand. At the cost of our lives, we got bread because of the desert sword. Our skin burned hot as a kiln from the raging fever of famine. Women they ravaged in Zion, virgins in Judah's towns. Nobles were impaled by them, elders they did not honor. Young men carried millstones, and lads stumbled with loads of wood. Elders were no more in the gates, nor young men at their songs. Our heart's joy is no more. Our dance has turned to mourning. The crown of our head has fallen. Woe to us, for we have offended. For this our heart is anguished. For these our eyes go dark. On Mount Zion, that is desolate, foxes go about. But you, O Lord, for all time are enthroned. Your throne for all generations. Why should you forget us forever? Forsake us for endless years. Bring us back to you, Lord, that we come back. Renew our days as of old. For indeed you have rejected us. You have been grievously furious with us. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, if y'all remember back to when that the Avengers movies were coming to the end, right? We knew Endgame, or we knew sort of like all of the Avengers were going to come together in these massive movies. And I remember going to Avengers with my roommate. And at the time, my roommate wasn't super into Marvel. During the COVID lockdown, we watched all the Marvel movies from their release date coming out. So now she's a bit of a Marvel expert. But at the time, she really didn't know. She really wasn't keeping up. And so we go to the Marvel movie. And if you guys remember, what happens at the end, there's the snap by Thanos. And then half half of the people become dust. And, you know, you've been in this movie theater for over two hours at this point when this happens. Like, you know the movie's coming to an end. And that's how it ends. Like, it ends really bleak, and the story, it it feels very unfinished. And you're just like, really? Like, that's the end of the movie? And my roommate, who did not know that it was a two-part movie and that Endgame was going to be coming, goes, what? No. Out loud, in a movie theater. She is not the type of person to talk out loud in a movie theater. And then when Black Panther is turned to dust, she's like, no, we just got him. And she's saying all of this out loud. And I'm like, Bryn, hey, there's another movie coming. Did you not know that? And she was like, oh, no. And she's like, wait a minute. I have to wait? How long until we get resolution here? And I'm like, oh, yeah, over a year. Like, it's going to be a hot minute. And that little moment, like her response, her like, no, this is not how movies are supposed to end is so true to how we like our art and our media and our stories. We like a happy ending. Most of our movies have happy endings until really postmodern movies started coming out. Like if you guys went and saw If Bill Street Could Talk, it's this movie about a guy who is unjustly imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. 
and then you get to the end of the movie, and I'm going to try not spoil it for you, but it doesn't have the resolution that you want. And it's a punch to the gut. And that's the point of the movie. Like, it's meant to be a punch to the gut. It's meant to be communicating something. And the same thing for the Avengers movie. Like, you are meant to be like, no. No, Thanos can't win. Ah! And then, of course, you know, you go to Endgame, and we all remember when the circles, the, like, light circles open, and there's that one scene where all the women are staying together, and I out loud was like, that's right, in the middle of the movie theater. So anyways, I digress. But that feeling of we want resolution You're not going to get it. (laughs) So I just read the scriptures to you. We're ending Lamentations 5. We have had pockets of hope in the midst of pockets of despair. We have had pockets of trust in the Lord in the midst of wailing and anger and desperation. And you think, well, maybe we're going to end with, and yet I trust in you all the days of my life. You are good. Okay, thanks. And that is exactly not what we get. And so in this last poem, this fifth poem book, so we've got five poems in in the book of Lamentations. This one is no longer an acrostic, which is to say, like, if you remember, we went A, B, C, or Olive, Bait, Gimel, Dalit, the way that the Hebrew alphabet goes, this one, no longer. It's as if grief has turned its volume up. And it's like there's a cacophony of voices that are all crying out. And you know that it's these multiple voices because it's no longer... It's no longer first person singular. It's now first person plural that we're going to see throughout this poem. There's also third person plural. But for the most part, what we're getting in this fifth poem is now the community is crying out. So we heard from Daughter Zion. We heard from Narrator 1. We heard from our strongman. We heard from Narrator 2. And at the end of chapter 4 yesterday, we heard from the community. And now that same community is going to end our end our lament, end our book of lamentations here. And it's their voices that are crying out. But it is no longer ordered in structure. It's as if the grief has spilled over into chaos is the way the Bible Project talks about it. And so the general gist of what we're going to do is verse one is a plea. It's a general like, you know, look at us sort of thing. Um trying to get God's attention. Then verses 2 through 18 is a complaint, and we're going to hear some of the same stuff that we've been hearing throughout the book of Lamentations. And then verses 19 through 22, 19 to the end, is another trying to get God's attention. So verse 1, trying to get God's attention. They use the same verbs that we've seen throughout. They're basically telling God, like, look at us. And they use the verb uh, for remember, it's zakar. And so they're like, okay, remember us, God. Then they use the verb nabat, which is to pay attention to us. And then they use the verb ra'ah, which is see us. So you get this like threefold pleading to God to remember, to pay attention, to see. And they're going to great, like, God, look at us, which is, of course, the same plea that daughter Zion had. It was the same plea, like, like you remember the strong man. He's like, I, I just want someone to hear me. I just want someone to see me. I just want someone to comfort me. And so they are turning to God. The communal lament now is turning to God saying, would you please remember your people? And then verses 2 through 18 is the complaint. And a lot of this is what we've seen before. As one commentator said, verses 2 through 18 is what God should see. And then verses 19 through 22 is what God should do. And the idea is, is if God sees what we're experiencing, perhaps that would move him to act. It's, it's the same pattern that we've had throughout Lamentations. If you saw what was really going on, and again, of course God sees, but their whole point in bringing this communal lament and, and describing these really graphic images is because they believe it's through those graphic images that that would provoke God to do something. 
And so the two biggest things that we see is they need food and it's so hard for them to get, right? They they are famine. When they go to the woods to try and gather, there's the sword in the woods. They Their skin is boiled over from the, the rash of famine. Uh, they just don't have the the resources to eat like they used to be able to eat. And that means they've had to sort of sell their souls to both Egypt and Assyria in order to have just basic nourishment. Okay, so they need food. And then the other thing that they need is they need safety. They're not safe. They're being ruled by slaves. Their important people are being hung publicly. And then one of the things that that the Book of Lamentations has pointed out, that daughter Zion, she is pictured as the victim of sexual assault. And here in the communal lament, we have it again, where they, where they say, look, the people of Babylon have sexually assaulted our women. And I want to point something out about rape in the ancient world. Rape in the ancient world, um, and this is wrong and grotesque, okay? So hear me, this is, this is horrifying. But the way that rape in the ancient world was viewed when there was warfare was it was less about the violation of the women, the women were hardly even considered in these scenarios. But instead, rape was used as a tactic to humiliate the people that you've conquered. So remember, we're going back to an honor-shame culture. What would bring shame upon the men of any culture, of any group of people, of any country, of any nation? What would bring them shame would be their inability to protect their women and children. And so one of the things that foreign armies would often do is when they would go in to conquer a people, they would rape the women— And part of what they were doing there was to bring shame and humiliation to the people that they're conquering. And it would mix bloodlines if children came out of those relationships, thus making those those people's lineages now impure, according to ancient standards. That's bonkers. There's no such thing as impure because of ethnic mixing with marriages. But back then, it was believed that your bloodline was now impure and so that your people as a people group could disappear. If there's no longer pure-blooded Oklahomans, so to speak, because the Texans have now intermarried with them. Now the idea of being an Oklahoman can go away. I know that's a very gross, bad analogy, but what I'm trying to point out is like the rape here isn't even isn't even just at one level horrific because women are being violated. It's also communicating at another level what's horrific is it's bringing shame and dishonor upon these people and it's jeopardizing their family lineages. It's jeopardizing their property. It's jeopardizing all these things that are tied up into the ancient world of having children. Now hear me. Hear me say unequivocally, God thinks that is wrong. It is why throughout his law, he tells his people when they go into conquer to not do this thing, that there is provision for wives that are taken in warfare and it's not meant to be harmful in this way. But in the ancient world, the, the cultural differences are were different than they are today. And they are atrocious and wrong. And if you have been the victim of sexual assault, I am so very sorry. And I know that God cares. Um, so yeah, so the people need food, they need safety. That's what's going on in verses 2 through 18. And then we get a pivot again in verses 19 through 22, where again, the people are coming back and trying to get God's attention. So they try to get his attention in verse 1, then they bring their complaints in verses 2 through 18. And then in 19 through 22, they try to get God's attention again. And, and, it's ab- and they're just saying, look, we know who you are, right? It's this, they're theologically very sound. They're saying things that you're like, look, you are on your throne forever. Your throne is for all generations. Like you are, you are the king eternal. We know who you are. So, so don't forget us forever and don't forsake us. And what's really crazy is you want 21 to be the end. 
Like you want 21 to say, bring us back to you, Lord, that we come back, renew our days of old. But that's not how it ends. You want 21 to be the last one, but instead it ends with, for indeed you have rejected us. You have been grievously furious with us. And it just leaves us in this like, it's like watching Avengers before you see Endgame and not knowing how we're going to fix this. And that's how the book ends, is it ends in this really moment of uncertainty. And what's interesting is there's even times that we have throughout Christian history that people have services where they actually switch the verses of 21 and 22 so that it ends on a positive note because these services are doing something different than what the book of Lamentations is doing. But isn't that interesting? Verse 21, you're like, oh, there's our hope. Yeah, like bring us back to you. We're asking you to do something. Renew us as in the days of old. And then verse 22 is like, but you're like really angry with us. Super duper angry with us. And then the book just ends. It just ends. That's it. And of course, like what I want to do is I want to rescue you and tell you how the story really ends. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try and honor the book of Lamentations. And it's going to end in uncertainty. And the reason why I'm not going to do that is because I think the book is capturing something that's so true to the human experience of grief and lament, and that there is uncertainty. I remember for days and days and days, really months, I would finally have a good day after my sister passed away. I, you know, like I would think about something other than my own pain. I was starting to get my head above the water, so to speak. I was, I was emerging from my cloud that sits around you in trauma and loss. And then something would happen um, that would, that would remind me, it would trigger me and remind me of just my loss. I'd, I'd see something, I'd watch a movie, I'd hear a radio, it's something, just whatever. These are the things that happen to you when you're in grief. And I'd cry and I'd cry. And I remember I'd look at my roommate who really walked so faithfully with my family and with me through that whole season. I mean, she was an absolute warrior through it all. And I would look at Alex and I would, I would literally say this to her. I go, am I going to be sad forever? And I didn't mean that as a joke. Like, I meant it literally. Am I going to be sad forever? Is this what it means to be Nika now? That there's a part of me that's just going to carry this cloud over me for the rest of my life? Am I going to be sad every day for the rest of my life? Now, I can tell you all the answer is no. Like, for me. For me. And I'm not saying this is true for every experience, but I will just tell you for me, no, I, the Lord has been gracious to me. I feel like I have in some ways been restored in, into my old personality, which is, as many of y'all know, it's really playful. It's very <laughs> childish. I would say childlike because that sounds better, but in some ways it's just childish. Like I'm goofy and I play games and I have fun. Now there are still moments, there are still absolutely pivotal moments, but I'm a year removed now, about a year and a month removed now from my from the moment of deep loss and pain. But I tell you this story to tell you that in your grief and lament, there is uncertainty about your future. There is uncertainty about how God's going to deal with you. Even while you've just proclaimed that you know he sits on his throne forever. Like, I know that God is the God of restoration. I know that he's the God of healing. I know that he has given me all of these gifts in his spirit and in his people. I know the way that he's wired my personality. I know I knew all of that to be true. And yet I still, part of me was like, I am going to be sad every day for the rest of my life is what I really thought. 
unless God moves in my life and restores to me my joy, which I still had joy through that season and all that stuff. But, but my point in all this is that is what lament is. It can be this absolute affirmation of who God is and yet an uncertainty about your future. And that's just true to the human experience. And so what's my, what's my big so what? Well, I think it's important for us to know how the book of Lamentations has been used throughout history for both folks who are Jewish and folks who are Christian. Because what I believe has been fundamentally lacking, and part of why I've been doing this book all along, is I've noticed ever since COVID hit that so many people are ill-equipped to have language and posture and, and worship experiences that allow them to grieve that we went through an absolutely horrific season on a macro scale in the world, in the world. People died at massive rates. And then in the United States, we had a civil rights uh, movement that was unbelievably painful to watch our minority brothers and sisters being killed. And then, and then hearing more stories of things that we are now experiencing and seeing like the, the reality is, is like we have now, oh, it feels like it was always there, but somebody touched a nerve. And now all of a sudden Christians all over the world are going, oh gosh, oh gosh. And there's plenty of Christians like, yeah, it's been like this. Where have y'all been? But for many people, especially people who are the majority culture for where they live, they have not been taught to lament. In fact, they probably haven't even had a preacher preach out of these books, right? Because we don't like it. They're uncomfortable. And frankly, if you haven't experienced trauma and loss, then many times you don't even need these parts of the scripture is what you're thinking. But I think now we all understand why we all need lament. And so here's what I'd say is like the the Jewish people, they have a feast day called Tisha B'av. And and Bov is because of the Bav is like in Av is the month that corresponds to July and August. And what it is, is a day of feasting and mourning. And they use lamentations as their text to lead them through their liturgy. And what it is, is it's a, it was a day that was started to, to mourn the loss of their temple, both the first time and what we're talking about here in Babylon, then the second time in 70 AD, the Romans take out the temple again. Uh, which is very painful, and a lot of Jewish people died during that revolt as well. And then it also commemorates or really mourns the loss of many other times where the Jewish people have been wronged and harmed, including you know being cast out of England as well as the Holocaust. And so they have a time in their in their liturgy of their year, a day set aside to come in and mourn, and it is a mournful day. Um, you know, warm greetings are discouraged. Often the lights are low and they use the book of Lamentations to grieve, not just the losing of the temple, but also the other things that happen throughout their lives throughout the year. Think about that. Think about if you're, wherever you worship, wherever you do church, wherever you do, whatever it is that you do, think about what if you knew there was a day that you were going to come in and that's what you were going to do is you were going to grieve how therapeutic and beautiful and healing that would be for you as a member of that community. You think about it, you look over and see Sally, and you're like, man, I know what Sally's going through. And you see Bobby, and you're like, I know what Bobby's going through. And you see Jermaine, and you're like, man, I know what Jermaine, like to know that you're grieving together and to come together for that. 
The other thing that the Book of Lamentations has been used throughout history is in the Western Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, we have these tenebrae services, um, and many other traditions might also have them. Maybe your tradition has them. But it's these nights of worship during the Holy Week leading up to Good Friday. And these tenebrae services, uh, it's Latin for shadows because often the service would end up at nighttime, and as the sun was going down and the candles would be put out in the service, the shadows would fall over it. But the text that they would use was Lamentations. And they, in the same way that people would grieve and they were, there was uncertainty, they pair that with what was happening the week of Jesus' death. So can you imagine on Holy Saturday what the disciples might have been feeling? You can imagine the book of Lamentations was probably a place that they would have found comfort. God, what are you doing? Where are you? The one that we thought was you, the one we thought you sent has been cut down and struck down. Look at us. Hear us. Fix it. And so throughout Christian history, especially still, I believe still today in the Roman Catholic Church, they have these services and they use the book of Lamentations. So this brings me to, if, if the entire Judeo-Christian religious world throughout our history and to today uses the book of Lamentations as part of their liturgy to mourn and grieve, shouldn't we then be people who do that? That's my big so what for this whole book is just that we're meant to lament. We're meant to be people that when bad things happen, and they happen all the time, that we don't rush to Sunday in the resurrection, but we sit in Friday and Saturday and we remember and we grieve and we allow for the human complexity of grief where there's both faith and not so much faith. It's like the guy, I believe, help my unbelief. Like that's what Lamentations feels like. You are good, but you're also thrashing me. And I'm super angry, but also it's my fault. And where are you? You can't even hear me, but also you hear my cries. And I know I did this to myself, but also Babylon's not innocent. And Edom, don't you dare look at me because I'm going to slap you across the face. Right? Like that's what Lamentations is. And God preserved it. So here's my big so up for all of us is that we have got to be people who recognize that perhaps the reason why God has kept this as a third of his Psalms in this book for us is because the only way we can be truly human and truly experience this life in the way that God intended it is if we are people who have the language, the posture, the vocab, and the practice of lament. And that we would not only do it for ourselves, but we would give permission to others and that we'd recognize the communal nature of it and that we would weep with those who weep. That when we experience our own lament, we would be like daughter Zion and the strong man and the community and we would cry out to God in all of our honesty and in all of our pain and we would turn to him and we would ultimately trust him. But even in our uncertainty, we would cry out to him because we know he's the only one that can fix it. And when it's not us that's gone through it, then that we would be like narrator one who moves from indifference to wholehearted lament to where our bile is spilling out on the ground because we love people enough to feel their pain. That when our brothers and sisters cry out and say there's something unjust happening, that we would care about that. When people around the world are suffering, we would care about that. When our neighbor is hurting, we would care about that. God gave us the language of lament. He preserved it for us. And I believe the way that we can faithfully live out what it means to be humans made in the image of God is for us to express and participate in lament 
for all the brokenness in the world. And there's enough. <laughs> there's enough. Pick, pick the brokenness. All right, friends. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God is crazy about you, even when it's hard to believe it. Peace.